I'm sure all of you want to reduce taxes. That's kind of a given, right? So how do you do that? I think a lot of people start by deciding to hire an accountant. Seems like a natural good first step, but I think the problem we find is that most accountants are simply just doing tax prep. There's really no strategy involved. So naturally, you end up disappointed. What I would propose as a better first step is educating yourself. With a little bit of baseline education, you put yourself in a position to be able to search for accountants, measure success, propose strategy, or maybe you're going to do it yourself and you need that foundational knowledge to get started. Either way, I think educating yourself is the key first step to starting to work on strategy to reduce taxation. My guest today is David Glenn. David is a CPA and the founder of Glenn Advisory, an accounting firm that specializes in working with physicians across the country. David and I talked today about how the federal tax return works. We get into what progressive taxes are and how some of the basic income forms work. We also talk about itemized deductions and other deductions and credits and how that affects your ultimate refund or tax owed when your tax return is completed. So if you're interested in taking a first step and starting to educate yourself, you're definitely going to benefit from today's conversation. David, thanks for joining me today to chat. Yeah, thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about income taxes and we're going to try to keep it high level. But before we get into that, David, can you get a, give us a little bit of a background on yourself? Yeah, I'm happy to. So I'm the owner of a CPA firm called Glenn Advisory. And at Glenn Advisory, we only work with physicians doing tax planning and tax compliance services. And we work with physicians all over the country. I, I live in Hawaii. My wife is a professor at a university out there. And I always tell my clients if they want to come out for a tax meeting, we can deduct part of their trip from their vacation. So that's, <laughs> that's uh, good they, they like that. Right yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I've got, got three kids and out there. And so we're enjoying our life out there. Cool. Well, yeah. So we're going to be talking about income tax and kind of how that works. I guess before we get into that, can you share, you know, exactly what progressive taxes are? I think that's probably a good starting point is understanding that. It is. Yeah. It's something that's often misunderstood. So the idea of a progressive tax is that the more income you earn, you're going to pay a higher tax rate on those additional dollars that you earn. And one of the things I often hear misunderstood about this is that if you earn more money, then the tax rate you pay on all of your income suddenly goes up to that new rate. It's actually that everybody pays the same rate on the first X number of dollars. And then the next number of dollars that they earn is the same rate for everybody. And so like, for example, looking at the tax brackets. So if you're married, that you're going to pay 10% tax on the first $19,900 of taxable income. And then you're going to pay 12% on between 19901 and 81050 So So there's a different layers of tax rates that go up. And so it, and as you go up, the highest rate is 37%. So you go as low as 10 and as high as 37. The thinking behind that is that as a higher income earner, it, it, uh, the next dollar doesn't matter as much as someone who's maybe more poor. Whether you agree with that thinking or not, I've heard that as a rationale for having a progressive rate system like that. Yeah, I, we've had clients on occasion ask if they should decline pay increase just given that it's going to bump them into a new tax bracket. <laughs> I think that's the, that sort of thinking is, comes in as a result of, you know, not totally understanding the progressive tax system. Basically it's designed to always have, there's always incentive to add, you know, to make more money. Right. But 
it's, I guess, right. a, a slowly decreasing incentive. Yeah, there's certainly a, for everybody at a point at which it's no longer worth to earn more money. But the rates we have today, it's usually not the income tax taxes that decide that for people. Mm-hmm. Top rate of, it, they're still high, but, uh, you know, 37% plus the state rate. But that's usually yeah. other factors that I've seen. Gotcha. So we're going to be talking kind of zeroing in on income tax. We'll try to stay out of business taxation that gets starts to get complicated. So we'll just kind of focus on individual income tax. And so if we're looking at income tax, I think at a federal level, one of the best things to kind of reference is the form, the 1040. Can you give us kind of a high level of what that is and what it does? Yeah. So the form 1040 is the, it's the tax return that individuals file. So an individual can be a single person or it can be a married couple. They can file a joint return. Mm-hmm. And it's where your individual income tax gets calculated. And so you, it's a form that you are responsible for filing every year. And every, everything comes to all of your income, all of your tax situation comes together on that one form. And then you end up with the number of what your total tax is. Yeah. It's how they got away with saying the one page tax form. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's a funny one. They took what was two pages and they turned it into nine half pages or quarter pages. And they said, Mm -hmm. now it's a one page return. So it's... Well, really all it is the 1040. So, but what's the 1040 is really a summary of, you know, a lot of other information. That's right. Yeah. So that, yeah, the 1040 is two pages, but you see a lot of references to other schedules, like schedules with Mm -hmm. letters A through D and so on. And then there's schedules one through five. And so all those come together, pull the information together where it eventually gets aggregated on these two pages, but it's a little bit useless without having all those other schedules and worksheets and things attached. Yeah. So if you guys are listening along and you're able to, you know, look at a 1040, we're going to kind of reference it from time to time. But I think the first starting point is looking at like income and kind of how that works. I think there's a lot of uh, confusion and misconceptions on this, you know, on the 1040, I think it's line one through seven is, is where the income comes in. So if we could just start with wages and I think what I see a lot of times is confusion around that. And what's the difference between compensation and wages and how does that all kind of flow through? Yeah, that's a good question. So let's say you work at a job and you get paid $200,000 a year. That's your base salary. And let's say at work you have a retirement plan and you're going to put your $19,500 into that. And then you have to pay $500 a month for health insurance out mm-hmm. of your check. And then your employer pays the rest. That nineteen five and the $6,000 a year you're paying for health insurance, that's going to reduce your the income that you're taxed on. So instead of $200,000 a year, you're paying income taxes, you're paying $200,000 minus the $19,500 minus the $6,000 for health insurance. And then it's that number that ends up in box one of your W-2. There are, And there are other items that will reduce that, HSA contributions, FSA contributions, any other pre-tax benefit that comes out of your paycheck is going to reduce that box one. Mm-hmm. So that'll create a, a discrepancy or a difference between what goes on your return and then what your employment contract might say what your pay is. So you get your compensation, your salary, and then it gets reduced by some of these pre-tax line items through your, typically through payroll. And then the reduced amount ends up being your wages that actually comes through on your tax return on those lines. That's correct. What about some of the 
other line items on as far as income, you, you know, I, I know there's several of them, but uh, what would you, maybe, you know, we could start at kind of the top and work down. I know there's several of them, but. Yeah. So the, yeah, this next little section lines two through five, it's types of income where either it's, um, you might have a, a certain amount of income, but only a portion of it's taxable. So like, mm -hmm. for example, line 2A in the middle column there is tax exempt interest and then B and then 2B is taxable interest. So if you invested in some municipal bonds and you had a thousand dollars of interest from those, you'd put that on line 2A and then any other taxable interest you have, you put on line 2B. Then, and then it's a similar thing for the next one, like dividends and qualified dividends. Qualified dividends come if you own the shares long enough. I think it's like 45 days after the X dividend date. And so the way it's presented on the form here is that like line 3B is your total dividends that you received. And then out of those dividends, how many are qualified gets listed on 3A. So I actually had a client ask me the other day, he thought I double counted his dividends on the return, but I explained that it just, the way it's presented, it's that um, it just means that the qualified dividends is out of the total dividends listed, how many are qualified and are subject mm -hmm. to the lower tax rate. Right. So there's a couple quick thoughts on those or strategies to kind of keep in mind if you're seeing, I guess, qualified dividends are, you know, always pref preferred, right? That, that That's right. Yeah. You get a much lower rate that right, non-qualified dividends are taxed at your, whatever your marginal tax rate is. Whereas qualified dividends are taxed at the, your long-term capital gains rate, which the highest is 20%. And then there might be an additional net investment income tax on there. So it ends mm -hmm. up being like 23.8% at the top end, but it could be lower. So that's something I have seen people don't realize that it is occurring is they have a very high amount of dividends and very little of them are qualified. And that's kind of a big consideration to be thinking about because, you know, ideally you have a very high percentage of qualified dividends so that, cause that's going to generate less tax, right? That's right. Yeah. That can, there can be some substantial savings. Like if you're in the top bracket at 37%, but you're only paying, 23.8% on your, and that's a nice spread you have there. Same sort of thing with interest. I don't know that there's as much opportunity, but ideally, you know, you, you get tax-free interest, right? But Yeah. Yeah. So I think the thinking there is you look at what your after-tax like return is on it and see, you know, what the thing is there. But yeah, from a purely tax point of view, taxes like a tax exempt interest is better. So then we get into some of the other items. I, you know, I know IRA distributions is on the list, social security benefits, capital gains, losses and losses and gains. Um, I wanted to hit on the IRA distributions because we see so many issues with this one. I don't know if you do, I guess you probably don't because you're kind of getting to them before they become issues. <laughs> yeah. I see them on like, if it's a new client looking at their prior returns, I fix more than one. Um, <laughs> Backdoor Roth reporting. Yeah. But yeah. So I'll explain what, what happens here. So I think what Daniel was referring to was the, the backdoor Roth. Often what will happen is it's when you are, it's a way to contribute money into a Roth IRA if you're over the income limits. And so if you first put it into a traditional IRA, and then a second step is you put it into your Roth IRA. And the way and that has to get reported on your return. And so that it gets reported the amount that you rolled from your traditional to your Roth goes on line 4A, then none of it should be taxable. So then the zero should be on line 4B. So if you don't report it right, you'll end up with the taxable amount on line 4B being the amount of your rollover and it defeats mm -hmm. the purpose of having done the backdoor Roth in the first place. Yeah, so ideally 
you know, if I'm doing backdoor Ross, especially if I don't have advisors looking at this stuff, or if I'm unsure if they're doing it correctly, I'm always going to be looking at that, you know, every year when I file my returns after they're done, looking at those lines to kind of make sure that the, you know, ideally that line is zero for income in relation to the IRAs if you're doing backdoor Ross. That's right. Yeah, that should be, if you're in your working years and you see a taxable amount of IRA distribution and you're not doing a Roth conversion or something like that, then you know something's wrong. Yeah. Um, so to go look for, to figure out why it's not coming through the right way. Right. We actually talk about the all the steps and kind of how that backdoor Roth IRA process works in the episode before this. So if you guys are interested in kind of understanding what that works a little bit more specifically, check that out. But what about some of the other line items if we kind of keep doing, going down that list? Yeah. Yeah. So the next one, pensions and annuities. So that'd be like if you take a distribution from your 401k, anything, any side of a retirement account that's not an IRA mm-hmm. is going to go there. And so like if you, if you have like a Roth 401k, you're taking money out of, I think that it's going to go on 4C, but then not D. Yeah. And then the next one, social security benefits. So the the biggest percentage of your social security benefits that get taxed is 85%. So there's always going to be a difference between line 5A and 5B. So you put the total amount of social security benefits on A and then your, the software will calculate the taxable amount. It's a surprisingly complicated calculation that I'm glad I don't mm-hmm. have to do by hand. So, But basically not all social security benefits are taxed it's some fra- some percentage of them and yeah yeah and the highest percentage is 85 but if you your income is lower than that maximum amount in that calculation it'll be a lesser percentage and then there's capital gains and losses that's kind of a uh, i would say a bigger subject but maybe the if we could start with the high level yeah yeah a high level a capital gain is or loss is the gain or loss you recognize from the sale of a capital asset so capital asset is like stocks real estate me capital asset it's and so that's, there's, a, there's like a netting process that happens with your gains and your losses. And then there's a limitation on an overall loss you get deduct. So once all that's been done on Schedule D, and then there's a 8940, Form 8949 that goes behind that, and some other forms even, the net number ends up on line six. So if you're looking at that as far as you know strategy, what oftentimes we will see is that there's a lot of capital gains coming through. And sometimes a lot of short-term capital gains. And so say for instance, someone is trading stocks, you know, day trading that generates all kinds of short-term capital gains. Right. So yeah, that'll typically show up on the tax return. I think the average day trader I've talked to doesn't quite realize exactly the tax effect of what they're doing when they're trading stocks every day. But the problem with that is each gain if you've only held something for such a short period of time, it's going to trigger that short-term capital gains rate, which is a much higher tax rate, right? It is. Yeah. It's your, it's taxed as ordinary income, which is those rates we talked about earlier. It's not the lower preferred capital gains rate, long-term capital gains rates. And another, yeah. Another thing to keep in mind with that is there's like a netting process that happens. Mm-hmm. So you net your long and your short-term losses together. And right. then if you're, you know, if you have a long, if you have a short-term, loss that's less than your long-term gain you net those together and then the difference is a long-term gain so it you know you gotta for planning purposes think through how that netting will come out yeah it gets a little confusing it does it gets to get to get tricky really fast yeah so ideally i think it's best to you know minimize capital gains for most of the people we're working with that are 
younger and have higher incomes that are in high tax brackets. And, you know, typically for people in higher brackets, we're trying to minimize capital gains as much as possible. And in some cases, intentionally trigger losses, you know, tax loss harvesting, that sort of thing. And that this is where it will come through on the tax return. If you're doing tax loss harvesting, you know, every year and you're getting plenty of losses, you should show like a negative 3000 on that section of your return every year, which is, can you explain that? Yeah. So most capital loss that you can deduct in a year is $3,000. So if you have in a given year, let's say you have $20,000 of capital losses, you can only deduct 3000 and then the remainder gets carried over to the next year. So mm -hmm. I have, I've worked with people in the past that they, through one series of events or another, they end up with some really huge capital gain and you know, they're probably, they might not even use it up for the course of their lifetime. And uh, so that's, that can actually be a planning opportunity because if you got a big capital loss carry forward, then that means you've got some tax-free capital gains that you can recognize later on. And so while it's unfortunate you had the losses, it also presents a planning opportunity. Yeah. Our general approach is because investments go, always go up and down is that, you know, when they go down, there's typically opportunities to take losses intentionally. And that's what we mean by tax loss harvesting is, but the gist of what we're talking about today is I think if you're looking at your tax return on that line item, ideally that number is lower or at minimum, you should be able to explain, you know, where that's coming from or understand it because there's all kinds of opportunities, you know, timing and that sort of thing that comes into play that will allow you to lower your taxes. Mm -hmm. that's, that's right. Yeah. And capital gains and this timing of the sale of capital assets is it's very tax efficient in that it's not generating income every year, like, like interest or dividends are thrown off every year and you can control when you recognize the gains. And so that provides some planning where as other types of income are a little less tax efficient in that way. Yeah. That's just one, that's just one piece of the puzzle that you're factoring in and trying to maximize your after tax wealth and income. Now, I guess there's a little bit of an exception there is if you're in a low enough tax bracket, long-term capital gains, you know. Yeah, it can be zero. <laughs> yeah, so that would be the time where you, hey, I can control the timing of it. So I'm going to take let's pull game. the trigger on this while I'm low, while I'm in low income. Yeah. Yeah. So the key yep. though, there's all kinds of different, it's almost like each one of these line items has its own set of rules. And what I would advocate is I think it, everyone should at least understand the basics of each of these so that you can kind of start to think in terms of your day-to-day, -day, what you're doing, you know, how does it affect things? How does it affect the decision you're making? So that all gets smushed together, right? Like all those income line items come together to form or to sum up to your total income. That's right. Yeah. So you just, if you're looking at the form, you just add, call, add rows one through seven A. And then that's your total income at this point in the process. So it's like a multiple stage process to calculate ultimately your taxable income and then your tax. So this is kind of the first, the first step here is arriving yeah. at what your total income is. Right. And we still have, there's still several steps before we even calculate <laughs> your tax, which is a lot of another misconception, but so then we have all these adjustments. So can you talk about the adjustments? Yeah. So an adjustment, that just means that it's in the step in the process from your total income before we get to the next stage, which is called your adjusted gross income. So all the items that get you from your total income to your adjusted gross income are called adjustments, aptly called. And so these types of things, so they're listed out on schedule one, which is not 
part of the two page 1040 it's a that it goes along with it so it's a one page form and there's a part two of it that says adjustments to income and it lists out um, about uh, 10 or so items so i'll highlight the most common ones there's some ones that are rarely if ever used that i've seen at least in my the clients i work with and so the one of the main ones that i see is there's a the deduction for your health savings account contribution and so this is where if you are self-employed or you're not contributing to your HSA through your payroll, that you would take a deduction here. If you're at your job and you're, they're taking money out of your paycheck to go into your HSA, you don't want to put that amount on this adjustments to income. This is only one if it did not go through your payroll. And kind of as a side note, if you can, it's always better to make your HSA contributions through payroll because it mm. not only reduces income tax, but it reduces payroll taxes as well. Yeah. Quick so, little side note little, on that. Yeah. The... HSAs, we have several clients at companies where they do not have a, a payroll option for HSAs. And so they are basically forced to fund them on their own. And just if that happens to be you, it's not common, but it's definitely out there. You have to, you want to verbally tell your accountant, you have to kind of, there's not really anything you guys get because the tax form comes out after taxes are done, right? Yeah. So the way that the mechanism that gets communicated and how I know to deduct or not deduct is if they're telling me they put X amount into their HSA, I look at their W-2 and there's, I think it's box 12, it's code W. And that means that's money that went into their HSA. So if I don't see a code W on there, then I know that it didn't go through payroll. So, but that is something I always yeah, so if they don't check and it's easy to get mixed, to get missed. And if, if they don't tell you about it, it's going to get missed. So that's exactly. tossing money out the window. So you have to tell mm -hmm. your accountant verbally when those sorts of things are coming through. So what are, yep. what are some of the other adjustments? Yeah, so the next one that's relevant is the deductible part of self-employment tax. So this is one that gets automatic, automatically calculated by any tax software that you're using. So self-employment tax is, it's a tax on your self-employment income. So this is work, if you're working like as a contractor or if you have your own practice that's not an S-corp or you're a member of a partnership, you're gonna be paying self-employment tax. So what they, you get to deduct half of the self-employment tax that you pay. Mm. And uh, so that's where this deduction goes. So this isn't anything that you need to like, keep track of or anything like that. It just gets calculated as part of the overall tax calculation. And then the next line item, it's called self-employed SEP simple and qualified plans. So if you have a, for a solo 401k, a SEP IRA, or like a cash balance plan, this is where that deduction goes. It goes on line 15. And, or if you're, and then if you're like a, partner in a partnership that has a 401k you participate in that, that flows through and ends up on this line as well. And so the only time I would want to see a deduction on the line is if you participate in one of those plans. Mm -hmm. And then the next item, self-employed health insurance deduction. So that's pretty self-explanatory about the name. So if you are like working as a contractor or have your own practice, basically you're not participating in a health insurance plan of another employer, then you are able to deduct your health insurance premiums in full right here. So it's advantageous. Any deduction in this section is very advantageous because it's not subject to any itemized deductions, limitations, or anything like that. And it reduces your right AGI. It just comes right off the top. And your AGI, which is the next number in this formula, it's used to determine other things as well. So it's good in some ways to have a, a lower AGI. So it's beneficial to lower your AGI. So this is a very favorable place to have a deduction mm -hmm. compared to other places. And then uh, those are the main ones I see. Then there's like IRA deduction. Most of my clients are making too much money to contribute to an IRA and then student loan interest deduction. That's the same story. Once you get to a certain level of income, 
then the deduction gets phased out there. So yeah, so that's where those get. And then those get all totaled up and then it flows back to the page one of the 1040 mm-hmm. line 8A. Which is total income, right? Or AGI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 8A is your adjustments and then 8B, the next one is your adjusted gross income or AGI. That's what that means. And then we still don't calculate tax on that. <laughs> no, we're not there yet. Not there. We've got a couple more steps, yeah. Yeah. So then comes what? Itemized deductions, right? Yeah. Itemize your standard. So this is an either kind of situation. So everybody gets a standard deduction based upon their filing status. So for a married couple in 2020, it's 24,800 and a single person, it's half of that. It's a 12,400. And a couple of years ago, the standard deduction was raised, was basically doubled from where it was before as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And, uh, and the, yeah, so, the, so you basically, you get the standard deduction or your itemized deductions. So the itemized deductions are your state and local taxes. So that's like your state income tax, your property taxes and your personal income tax. Sorry, your, sorry, your personal property tax. And, and then you have your mortgage interest and then you have your charitable contributions that once you factor, you add all those together and then there's a $10,000 overall limit on state and local taxes. So if you paid... $50,000 of state income taxes. The most you can deduct as an itemized deduction is $10,000. And then, so that applies across all types of local taxes, property and real estate and personal property taxes. So that was a real ding to people that lived in high income tax states. So what you do is you add all those together. And if it's more than your standard deduction, then you would use that. And if it's not, then you use the standard deduction. And so so if you have it's 10,000, say you have a, you know, 10,000, you've maxed out the income tax, state income tax deduction, or they call it SALT, right? Yeah, state and local tax, that's SALT in the, yeah. in the tax world. So they've, you say you've maxed out the 10,000 there for state income tax or property tax, or, and then you have 10,000 on your mortgage interest and you're married. Yeah, you're not going to be itemizing because you only have, 20, I forgot what the number you said. Yeah, 20,000. So you're short on that. And so so a lot of times people talk about, oh, I bought a home and I, what are my tax benefits for buying a home? Well, this is it. And so if you're not itemizing your deductions already, not owning a home is not reducing your tax bill now, year to year. Right. Your mortgage, so that doesn't, it's not a reason not to buy a home, but just don't factor that in as a reason to do it. Right. Most people in training, will not be getting any tax benefit from their mortgage interest. Right. The odds are. Right. I mean, right. there's exceptions if you have high charitable giving. So that the three most common deductions we see are the, inco- the state income tax and property tax is number one. Number two is the mortgage interest. And then number three is charitable giving. And so if you're charitable giving, if all three of those are high, you'll you know exceed the limit. But in training, it's t- we typically rarely ever see people itemizing deductions. Right. Yeah. M- most of the time, most of the clients I see that end up itemizing have a big mortgage mm-hmm. on their house and it pushes them over. There is one strategy here and it's, it became more relevant with the higher standard induction is that if you regularly make charitable contributions, like sometimes people pay a certain amount of their income to like to their church or something like that. If you, if you could pay two years worth of that in a single calendar year, that might be enough to put you over the standard deduction for one tax year and then like you have an off year. So that's that applies in some situations. If you're if you have a house, maybe you're paying fifteen thousand of mortgage interest and then another five or so of state income tax. Where you're close, 
but you're not quite there yet. So yeah, like the, the example I was saying earlier, the 10,000, 10,000. Mm-hmm. So tw- if your itemized deduction totals 20,000, if you give 5,000 charitably, that puts you at 25,000. Essentially, you get no benefit tax wise for the charitable contribution. Right. So if you make 5,000, if you pay $5,000 every year, you would be better off paying two years worth in one calendar year. So now you got 10,000. <laughs> or three years worth. Yeah, to b- bunch it together. And, and the key to this is that it's something that you're already doing. If, it's, if you're not already doing charitable giving, doing this won't put you ahead financially if right. that's your goal in doing this. So that's yeah. a question I ask all new clients. Do, are you regularly contributing to anything? And if they are, then we talk about this. Are there any other itemized deduction line items you see? Those are- uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah, there used to be some miscellaneous yeah. itemized deductions, but they kind of they chopped those away a couple of years ago. Yeah. So they actually just got a lot simpler. There's yeah. casualty and theft loss and stuff like those. Those are rare, and right. it's rare rare that you actually get a benefit from it. So gotcha. So then you take AGI and then you reduce it by whether your standard or itemized deduction got away from your AGI, and then and then we get to taxable income, right? Or wait, well, QBI. There's one more we're, thing. We're not. Yeah. Gonna- do we want? <laughs> I don't think we want. No, to that could money. be. I did a CP. I've done more than one CP on on QBI, and it's that we always spend at least four hours going over. Yeah, it. no, so, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so it's so uh, the other deduction that's in the way is qualified business income deduction. So once that gets factored in, gets calculated, then you finally arrive at taxable income, and taxable income is what as earlier in this we talked about how the tax rates. That's the number you apply the tax rates to is your taxable income. So we have total income adjusted gross income, and then finally your taxable income. And I think that's a misconception is people, you know, they're, say you're in training and you've, you're going to make 60,000 a year. And so they think, okay, 60,000, look at the tax brackets and then estimate their taxes based off that. But in reality, you have to make these adjustments and depending on what those adjustments look like, that's going to dictate what your ultimate taxable income is. And it's always going to be lower than your salary. And typically it's quite a bit lower. You know, I had, let's say you're making 60, you know, 5,000 goes to retirement plans. That's pre-tax. That's 55,000 in wages. Then you have 15,000 in, let's say itemized deductions because you're single. That brings you down to 40,000 in taxable income. So 40,000 is that number that you actually run through the tax tables. And it ends up being substantially less than if you ran through 60,000. It's also, that's where all the opportunities lies in, you know, in between the 60 and the 40. So now there are a few more things beyond that. You want to hit on tax credits? Yeah. Yeah. So we have this thing is called a tax credit, which is something that offsets the tax you owe dollar for dollar. So a Mm -hmm. common example is the child tax credit. So for each kid you have that's under 17, then you get $2,000 a year as a credit to offset your taxes. So that's worth $2,000. There's an income phase out once you get into the 400,000s where they get, where it goes away, but that's an example of a credit. And it's often mixed up. Credit credits are really good and they're, and deductions are good, but not quite as good as credits. So the value of a deduction is that it reduces your taxable income on which the tax is computed. And so we can quantify the, the value of a deduction as the dollar amount of the deduction times your marginal tax rate. 
and that's the amount of tax it saves you. So it might be that a deduction saves you 30 cents on the dollar. So if you have a hundred dollar deduction, it'll reduce your taxes by $30 because that's where your marginal tax rate is. Whereas a credit, if a hundred dollar credit, like it's actually saving you a hundred dollars on your return. So come straight off the bottom line. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So child tax credit, that seems to be the most common one. Yeah. That's a real common one. And then you can get a credit for all kinds of things. Like there's, yeah, the list is very long on the different, things, different types of credit. One. Child tax credit. I did a few plug-in vehicle credits this year, people buying Teslas. Solar credits, that's a good one. That's actually one where you can get a credit of up to 26% of the cost of the solar installation on your home. Is and that, that percentage is going down. Yeah, that's credit? a federal credit. And then some states have their own credits for solar. Yeah, so those are the most common ones or that most be my, most would most be applicable to our mm-hmm. audience here. So same examples, someone in training making 60 and then their taxable income gets down to 40. There's a good chance that if they have several children, they're paying zero taxes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So they could offset their tax entirely. And then which brings us to the idea of a refundable or non-refundable credit. Credit that's refundable means that if it's the credits are more than your total tax, that you can actually get the difference refunded to you. So if you have a credit of 2000 but your tax is only 1000 you could get a $1,000 refund. So it's basically a negative tax at that point because you're getting money back that you never paid in. Right. A non-refundable credit only brings your tax down to zero. So there are both types in our tax system. Okay. So we've gotten to the bottom line. That's how your tax is calculated. So can you share like refund versus owing tax? Like how does that kind yeah, of apply so- to this? So a, a refund is, well, so your tax return, what you're doing on your return is you're calculating your tax and then you're settling up with the government. You're saying, okay, here's my total tax. And then on the second page of the 1040, it lists all the payments you've made. So the payments could be through withholding from your paycheck or estimated tax payments. So you get credit for those against your tax. So if you paid more in during the year against than what your taxes, you get the difference refunded to you. And then if you paid less than the total tax calculated on your return, you have to owe money. And this kind of relates to a pet peeve of mine. It's often people will say, I got a big return this year. When really what they should be saying, I got a big refund this year. And so people mix up that terminology. A return is the form you file and a, a refund is the money you get back. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So if you, if you see David, don't use those terms. <laughs> yeah. So the, so you get to, your tax refund, you get your tax refund or, you know, you end up owing. I think that's pretty straightforward. The withholding stuff seems to confuse people a little bit. You have, what is it? The W-8, if you're an W-4. employee. W-4. See, W-4 you submit as an employee. That's what your employer uses to establish how they're going to withhold. That's all changed recently, right? Yeah, they had a new W-4 come out this year, and it's completely different. And it's, it's been a lot trickier to get withholding dialed in than it well, used to be. It, interestingly, it was changed to become, to be more simple and easier to... Yeah, yeah. So it didn't, and that might be the case if you're just relying heavily on the W-4. Because yeah. uh, in, in years past, I have had it where they were using the W-4, and it just didn't, it, they came up short. And yeah. so I don't know if, but in my case, I try and dial into an exact number, and that's, that's harder to do. I think it's simple when you have a relatively simple situation, but yeah. 
it's not so simple otherwise. So it's, um, can you give us kind of a high level of what I've had a lot of people struggle with knowing how to fill it out? Yeah. So it, it's uh, not a lot to it. So it's basically just filling in, following the steps on the form. So you indicate your marital status at the top. And then if you have any dependents, you put that in there. It get where it gets tricky, or maybe it doesn't work as well, is if you have income from other sources. Yep. And maybe some of it's not subject to withholding. Like a common scenario I see is someone will at a as an employee somewhere, maybe at a hospital, and they're making three hundred thousand, and then they do another hundred and fifty thousand dollars in moonlighting as a contractor. And so that actually requires some planning. So you could try on the W four here. There's a step where you could put in your other income that you can have withholding on that. So that's one way to approach it. Another way to approach it is like to do like a tax projection and figure out how much the total dollar amount you want to get paid in. Mm -hmm. And then I will even, there's like an online calculators I use to figure out what the W4 will produce. So I kind of use that and then have them fill out based upon that. So it can, it it can get tricky to get a certain number that you want, or you just put it down what your marital status is and then you make estimated payments for, which is not my preferred method of doing it, but yeah. Right. Well, as we as we wrap up, I think one of the most common questions we see people struggling with is knowing when to hire help or how to know when to do it themselves versus hire help or, you know, kind of navigating that sort of decision. I think for starters, if you have trouble getting through, like if you're listening to this and you're like falling asleep, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's probably a starting point where you probably should be, you know, outsourcing this kind of thing. But what are your thoughts on kind of navigating that or when's the best time or how do you know when to time? Yeah. Yeah. This is something that comes up a lot. Cause I, I talk to a lot of different people and a lot of times I'll tell them that their situation doesn't really warrant hiring a CPA. They should mm-hmm. probably tackle themselves. So those people are, if all or almost all of your income is coming on a W2 and you just have maybe some itemized deductions that's the tax return you should be doing yourself. You can, there's lots of online platforms and it's just putting the numbers in. If you have like a rental property or two, you could still probably tackle that yourself. You can need a little bit of homework to figure out some complexity there, or maybe you invested in some like a real estate syndicate. So you're going to get a K1 or two from different places. You could maybe still handle that if you're willing to put the time in to, to figure out how it comes together. And the stage at which I would say you should definitely get some help is if you are have a lot of, you're doing a lot of contract work, either full-time, either that's all you do, or you're doing, it's a good size part of your income. And cause that for, presents a lot of planning opportunities as well as just some compliance needs of making sure that you're paying enough in during the year mm-hmm. through withholding your estimated payments. And so those are the ones where that I like to work with, cause I feel like I can add more value to the situation. The other situations are really probably too straightforward to want to hire um, an accountant, or maybe just go to somebody you see once a year. I do more of a full service kind of advisor arrangement. But yeah. if you're, if you feel like just your tax return is more tricky than what you want to handle, you might go find just a tax preparer to go handle that because you probably don't need other services. Yeah, that's probably also worth clarifying. There's like anything, there's different service levels in hiring an accountant. And so probably the most common accountant that you would see in your local town is just going to be doing really just tax prep. So you meet with them once a year, bring them all your stuff, they do your tax return and then, you know, just knock it out. That's more of a time savings kind of a thing and making sure it's completed accurately. But beyond that, there's not a lot of strategic forward thinking going on or planning, but that's not really what David does, right? 
Right. Yeah. I position myself as, so I also do tax preparation, but I do a lot of forward thinking strategic planning and mm-hmm. things during the year. So I'm interacting with my clients several times during the year, planning for their situation and doing projections and things like that. And so that level of service is best for the more complicated situations that need it versus the more simple ones like where you're working as an employee mm-hmm. and you're getting a W-2. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, David, I really pre- appreciate you chatting with me today and talking through this. Before we wrap up, can you share how listeners can find you if they have questions, interested in your services? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I'm listed on the White Coat Investor under the tax strategist. My firm name is Glenn Advisory. My website is taxcpafordoctors.com. You can check on my website there and then there's a ways to contact me through my website there. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, buddy. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I had a good time. Definitely.